excited to be getting to the finish line in this series tomorrow on Christmas Eve service. We'll be looking at the last verses in Romans 5, and we jump into the middle of Romans 5 today. We've already seen how Paul is talking about a grace that reigns by faith, a grace that reigns on hope, a grace that reigns for peace. And now we're going to look at Romans 5, beginning in that fifth verse. It says this, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. We'll pause there. We just heard about God's love, and there's a word that he says is poured out. And just for those of us that really want to see this clearly, I'm, I have it up here in Greek and in Hebrew. So poured out. The second word there, shafar. Or, and then the last one is ekeo. And the idea here is that it's being poured out completely, as in being flooded. The idea that God's love is flooding your heart. And also you notice how there's making, Paul's making a connection between God and love itself. And we see in 1 John 4, um, verse 8, very clearly, God is love. God is love. So as God pours himself out, uh, it is love, the purest form of love, that is being poured out and floods our hearts. Uh, this idea of, of heart uh, that Paul is getting at here is it's, it's it's a little more than our current understanding of heart. We think of heart as just the seat of emotions or, or feelings, but for that first century viewpoint, when you talk of the heart, the cardia, where we get cardiology, that heart was the center of, of your personality. It was the center of where you make all your decisions. It was the center of your being. It was like your yourself, your ego, your who you are, your personality. It's the essence that that, that actually gives the motivation to everything that you think and everything you feel and everything you decide. That's the heart. It's more like when we use the word heart of the matter. That's what is being poured out into is, is your heart, the essence of who you are, the center of who you are, what makes you who you are. God's love is being poured out and filling completely that center part of who you are. I was reflecting on this and as I typically do now, <laughs> I thought about my own children, and I began thinking about what I would be willing to give so that I could have my love completely poured out into them, into their heart, that it would fill them. I began thinking about, like, if there was an opportunity for me to, to invest enough somewhere where they would understand as they're growing up that I am completely poured out my love into their heart and they are filled with that. I began realizing there, I would, I would with earnest seek out that opportunity that they would be able to know this. Because when you grow up and you have the sense that there is someone there that, that loves you this way, that they completely, their love completely is for you, that their love is completely poured out, that changes everything about how you feel about yourself, how you view the world, how you view possibilities. If you're completely filled with that love, because we make so many decisions in our life based on the, the desire to be loved. 
If you think about most of the decisions that you make in life are based on your desire to be wanted. They're based on your, your hope that you would be desired. And this can be a decision that you're making in a workplace. It could be with a family member or a spouse or a child or a parent or a friend. Ultimately, we're looking for those places where we would, we would be uh, known and loved. Now, we don't, we don't walk into our, uh, our bosses and say, do you love me when we're talking with them? But at the root, at the root there, you're asking them for, when you're asking for their approval, when you're asking for their approval, what you're doing is you're touching how we were created to be, and that is ones who are loved and who love. Ones who are loved and who love. What happens too often in, in our world is this goodness, this love that God created all people to have and experience and to give and to experience is corrupted. And it becomes a lesser form of desire, becomes a lesser form of want. We can begin to abuse those relationships. And instead of love, they become manipulation. Instead of love, they're just a way to take advantage of other people. And all forms of corruption have entered into the relationships that we have in this world. They enter into the corporate world. They enter into family systems. They enter into friends. And, and it gets worse the less that you know somebody. I was thinking the other day how interesting. You can be in a car, and you can drive, and someone would cut you off. And you're willing to shout something at that person <laughs> that you never would have shouted at them if they were actually standing right in front of you. <laughs> but that barrier of that car somehow gives you the freedom to start to break that relationship so quickly. Or think of all the things you've, you've read on, on a Facebook comment that you know someone would never have told them to their face. But, but when you start putting the barriers up and start separating ourselves from people, that idea of love breaks down. I so wish that I could pour out my love for my children um, taking those steps further. I wish I could do it for each one of you or, or for my parents. But ultimately, if, if I do enough self-reflection, I know that there is always going to be at least a small amount of known self-interest left. That's what the fall has done for us. That's what sin is. It's thinking of myself rather than God. It's love, God's word, what God wants for me. And each of us, as much as we would want to fully pour ourselves out, in the end, maybe you're 99.9% .9 poured out. There's always going to be one little fly in that ointment. There's always going to be one little imperfection that, that corrodes your, your perfect want to show your love to somebody else. Now, if you can begin to imagine this idea of pouring yourself out completely, then we begin to see the miracle of Jesus' birth. In the manger, when Jesus is born, God is completely pouring himself out for you. The reason why Christmas is something that the church revolves around is because it's this moment in which we can locate in time, in history, locate in time, but also in a place, a moment in which God 
completely poured out his love for humanity. He completely, nothing was held back. All of his fullness was born into Jesus Christ. When we talk to new people coming to faith, we always stress that Jesus is 100% God and 100% human. The 100% God is what should really give us pause. God completely poured himself out. He flooded humanity with his love in the birth of Jesus. He came down and was born in order to flood our hearts with love. He, he walked the earth and taught and did miracles to flood our hearts. He ultimately would be arrested and tortured to flood our hearts. He would be crucified, dead, buried. He would raise up to life again. All of this, all of this, because he would never be 99.999999 repeating percent pouring out his love. God's will has been always to be 100% poured out for you. Grace that reigns in love. In verse 6, we see this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The great philosopher uh, Henry David Thoreau, it's, it's told that he was laying in his deathbed and his sister comes up to him and, and she asked him if, um, if he had made peace with God. Do you know what his little witty reply was? He said, I didn't know we were fighting. <laughs> it's, it's a cute thing to say, but it's, it's pretty far away from what God has told us in the Bible of how things really are. Notice here in this scripture, it says that um, Christ died for the ungodly. It's talking about us. And also in the bottom, it says, while we were still sinners... We can perhaps trick ourselves into thinking that we have the power and that we're not sinful enough to need to be reconciled with God, but that's not the story the Bible tells. The story that Jesus says is that we're powerless and still sinning. There's the story that you'll remember. It's a story about being powerless, and you can find it in Luke 15. There was a son, and he had an older brother, but this younger son went to his father and asked him for all of his money, all of his inheritance. And what did he do with his money? He went to Vegas. And what did he do in Vegas? Lost it. I'm not sure if it was on one bet or if it was a week, but he lost all of his money. Famine comes. The Great Depression comes. And he's eventually found on a farm feeding pigs. And he looks down at the food that he's feeding to these pigs. And what does he think to himself? I could eat these. I could, I could even eat the food from the pigs because I'm that hungry right now. And then, boom, epiphany. I could go back home. 
my father, even if he accepts me as one of his servants, as one of his hired slaves, I would be better off than right here in this pig junk. So he goes back to his father. He goes back to his father powerless. He has nothing left that he can exert as influence. And yet as he's coming back to his father, before he even has a chance to say a word, it says that when his father saw him still a far ways off, he began running to meet his son. While he was powerless, the father arrived, put around his robe, his ring to welcome him back into the family. They had a party for him. This is the image that Jesus gives us. We are the ones who are powerless to come before God and to make that relationship right. But like that father, his love is poured out completely upon us even while we're powerless and still sinning. And still sinning. There's a great story also uh, Jesus tells of, of uh, the parable of the tenants and there's a, uh, the master of a household and, and there's these... Um, these people that have basically uh, come in, and while the, this, this master of the house is away, these, these, these people come, and they keep killing the people that are being hired by the master of that house. And the master sends, uh, sends people to come and, and to uh, try and say, hey, st- the master wants you to not be killing, but we need to be actually lifting this place up. And they keep killing the people the master sends, and finally he says, you know what, if I send my son... If I send my son, these people will definitely listen. They wouldn't dare kill my son. What do they do? Kill the son. Jesus is killed. There's nothing that he would not do, this master of the house. There's nothing he would not do, even sending the son. Why are we were powerless and why are we were still sinners? God shows us his love. Um... Edwards, one of the people that is a great Bible teacher today, he says this. Poor Richard's almanac says that God helps those who help themselves. This is classic deism. That means creating our own idea of God. But it's not classic Christian biblical theology. Here in Romans 5, Paul says explicitly that God helps those who cannot help themselves. But so often we live by that principle you know, if I, do my, if I do my part, then God will help me. We even, we even think that God might not be helping someone because they're not helping themselves. Especially in, in, in our country with the philosophy of picking yourself up by your bootstraps. It's good to be hardworking. I'm not saying we shouldn't be hardworking. I'm just saying the economy of God is not based on my effort. And that's a radical view for a lot of people to grapple with. Rather, the economy of God simply asks us to recognize our powerless and our sinfulness. And that love already flooding from God into the heart, into the very essence, into the very central part of who I am. We keep going. Verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the first time in the book of Romans, and it's actually a word that Paul uses exclusively in the Bible, is reconciliation. Reconciliation. I think the great way to understand this word is through the idea of adoption. The idea of adoption comes up a few times in Scripture. And I want to share, share these Scriptures with you to set this up. This is in 2 Corinthians, verse 18. And I will be a father to you. And you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Let me read that one more time. Try and capture the weight of this for you. I will be a father to you. And you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. We'll move on to John, the first chapter, 12th verse. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Children of God. And one more here. From verses from Romans. We'll get to this more explicitly in a few weeks. But for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. I, I have a, a very personal experience with this idea. Um, my, my mother, she's here, sorry I'm going to tell this, all this. My, um, my mother actually uh, divorced when I was very young. A very, very hard situation that she was in. And I remember none of it. I was baby age. And then not long after, within a few years, um, the person that you know as my dad, Michael, um, was married. And we grew up as, as an amazing family. And it wasn't until probably college or later that it dawned on me that I had never once felt like he wasn't my dad. Like, like as if he wasn't the one from the very beginning. I never once in my life have ever felt that I was less of a child than my sister. My half-sister. Even that was a weird thought one day to realize that she's my half-sister. It wasn't until, seriously, about college or after, that this all began, the depth of it began to sink into me. That how amazing it has been that, that he has accepted me and has loved me, has shown me such, such fullness of love, equal to that of, of my sister. It's a gift for me that I, 
that now sustains me. It's a gift for me also because I can see these scriptures in a way that is so palpable and powerful. In a way that now as you, as you grow up and knowing that, that someone loves you as such, but also that they have chosen to love you as such, this is God's will for us. This is God's hope for us that you have exemplified in my life. Thank you. That he has exemplified in my life. And I don't know, I don't know a better way in my life to understand God's love now than to see it as, as if God had adopted you. God has adopted you. You've seen it in scriptures that you have been given the name daughter and son of God. You have been given the name daughter and son of God to the point that now there is nothing that your God, your Father, will do. There's nothing that he will not do in order to love you completely. When he saw you in great need, when he saw that your direction was into pain and hard life and death, what did he do? As the one fully loving you, he put himself in the position. He came between you and death. He put himself on the line because that's what a father does that completely loves the son. There's nothing that they won't do to ensure the goodness of life for that child. This is your reality. This is the grace that reigns in love. Keller says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved, that's, well, a lot like being loved by God. It's what we want more than anything. To be truly known, to be fully loved. At the end of, towards the end of, of Karl Barth's life, Karl Barth was this prolific Bible scholar. He wrote so much. I like to read stuff that people write about the Bible, but Karl Barth wrote more, quite frankly, than I ever want to read. That's how much he wrote. Tomes upon tomes of, of writing and thinking, and it's deep. It's the type of writing that you need to read about five times to get through one page. Okay? But all of his peers adored him. And he was at, towards the end of his life, he, uh, he actually, I would think he was at Princeton Seminary. He's, he's from Germany. He was at Princeton Seminary, and someone asked him, uh, what would you describe as the foundational element of, of the Christian faith? What would you describe as the foundational element of the Christian faith? And he said, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. I don't think the people were ready for such a profound and deep response. Sometimes the most simple answer is the hardest to admit and is it goes the deepest into who we are. Accepting that I am a son or a daughter of Jesus, of God the Father, accepting that I am a child of God and accepting that as, as the good Father that that love has been fully poured out, has been flooded upon me. I can admit this, that Jesus loves me And this I know, for the Bible tells me so. 
because the faithful leaders of the Christian faith around Jesus heard him say this, saw him do it, and they wrote it down for us to now see and study and believe. Grace that reigns in love. We're going to come tomorrow evening around the manger, and then it's going to be Christmas. And we're going to be doing something for you as, as a leadership of the church. We want to use the 12 days of Christmas as a church-wide spiritual discipline to let the idea that Jesus loves me enter, enter into our thoughts, in our, in our prayer life, and in our daily rhythms each of those 12 days of Christmas. So day one is Christmas, and it goes to January 5th. I think that's the 12th day of Christmas. And we're going to be sending out either an email or if you're more of a Facebook or Instagram person or if you're on our WhatsApp group, we'll be sending out each day either a thought or a song or a scripture. And it will be at the aim of simply keeping the idea that Jesus loves me right in front of me. Because it's such a trivial idea. It's such a trivial idea. It seems so simple. But because it's so simple, we can get duped into thinking that it's not something to concentrate on. Because it's so simple, we can put it aside as child's play. But really, this is, I mean, that Jesus loves me is, is a most profound thing that we can concentrate on, and it can change us. So for 12 days, we're going to see what happens in our lives as we daily get a reminder to focus on this idea that truly Jesus loves me. So if, if by like day nine, you're like, oh my gosh, I got another email. Don't worry, it's only 12 days. But hopefully you'll be on day nine. Oh, I'm loving this. Keep them coming. Let me pray for us. Oh, our Heavenly Father, the one who has adopted each one of us into your family, Lord, we give you, we give you thanks. There's nothing that we can do in, to show you or to earn this because you have adopted us before we could even ask as babes you adopt us into your family and have given us a love that has flooded us Lord I ask that in these 12 days of Christmas to come that you would help this, this truth that you love me help this truth to linger and dwell with us richly so that after these after these few weeks we would be able to have a deeper appreciation and, and a stronger foundation for our life and who we are and who you are. I ask this in your name, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.